Hi there, House Culture listener. If you enjoy this episode or have enjoyed listening to other episodes in our series, please support and donate to us through the Acast Supporter feature. All donations will help us create the content that you love listening to. You can decide how much you give and there is no regular commitment. So it could be a one-off and every now and then or once every time you listen. It's really up to you. Click on the supporter link in the episode description and with Google or Apple Pay, it will take you less than 30 seconds to make your contribution. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, everybody. My name is Malcolm Haynes. I live in Bristol, and I'm very happy to be part of the House Culture Podcast. House Culture. Hello, everybody, and welcome to a very special episode of the House Culture podcast, hosted by me, the managing editor at House Culture, Matt Rouse. Welcome to the podcast. If you've not been here before, hello from House Culture, a collective of house music fans who have come together through their mutual love of the beat to celebrate the spirit of house music. Our home on Instagram at HouseCultureNet is where the party happens. But if you want to dig a little deeper, you can listen to us chat to genuine house music royalty in our previous podcast episodes that have featured the likes of Norman Cook, David Morales, Danny Tanaglia, Tall Paul and Danny Rampling. But our conversations don't just stop there. As we are House Culture, we like to investigate every element of this scene. That is why we have also spoken to people like Manu Mission founding member and Pikes Hotel creative director Dawn Hindle, saxophone sensation lovely Laura, Kiss FM founder Gordon Mack, and ex-Hacienda regular Buckley. Honestly, if you don't recognise the name, have a listen as we handpick all of our guests to make sure they have a fascinating story to tell. Now that summer has well and truly arrived, you're not missing the festival vibes too much. I know we're all counting down the days until we can gather in a sun-kissed field sometime soon, but in the meantime, this special episode should tide you over until we can all do so again. Because in celebration of what would have been the 2021 Glastonbury Festival weekend, we caught up with a man who, over a nearly 30-year career working for the festival, became one of the major faces backstage at Worthy Farm. His name is, of course, Malcolm Haynes, and... If that's one that you're not familiar with, if you've ever been lucky enough to have attended Glastonbury, you'll most certainly have parted to some of Malcolm's programming, as he is the person widely credited with introducing dance music to the festival, and was the head honcho of the dance tent, later the dance village, and more recently the huge spectacle now known as Silver Haze. 
His career at Glastonbury saw him working with a who's who of the dance music community. And as you'll hear in this episode, he is full of many stories about the behind the scenes goings on at the world's biggest festival, including his memories of his first ever Glastonbury experience. I went to a festival when I was 10 years old and all I remember was naked people dancing. And I just remember it was just quite bizarre. So I think my first Glastonbury experience was when I was 10 years old. The time he turned up at the festival with his own sound system. Literally, I just drove my truck in front of the second stage and we just had a rave. And we did it for two nights and it was fantastic. It was uh, it was amazing. So that was my first official, unofficial introduction to Glastonbury and there must have been 3,000 people there. The legendary act that he's most proud to have booked. That's my favourite part of Glastonbury and Daft Punk has only ever played there once. It was amazing. Every time the bass dropped in, it was like England scoring a goal. I could actually feel the roar in my stomach. It's the most incredible experience of my life. And the reasons why he puts on gigs in the first place. There is no better feeling than whether the the venue's packed or whether there's very few people there, but just looking at people and seeing, are they enjoying what they're seeing? And I've promoted all my life. I've probably lost as much as I've made, but I think I can honestly say that I put good gigs on. So I hope you got your tent packed and your wellies on your feet as we're about to take a trip to the most iconic music festival in the world, Glastonbury. Here's our guide, Malcolm Haynes. House Culture. Hi, Malcolm. Thanks for sitting down with us on the House Culture podcast today to share the incredible journey you've had throughout your career. You are widely credited as the man that brought dance music to Glastonbury. And as part of that, you basically booked anyone who is anyone within the electronic music scene. However, before we dig into that, we always want to start at the beginning. Can you tell us where you grew up and how you first discovered a love for music? I was brought up in care. I was literally snatched from home when I was about six months old. So I've, I've never lived with my parents throughout my whole life. When I was about seven, I got into music. And I used to have a little transistor radio that I used to put under my pillow. And I wasn't allowed to have that radio. Um, So it was very, I was being very naughty, even at the age of seven or eight years old. And um, I used to listen to Radio Luxembourg, Mm -hmm. which is a pirate radio station that was based out in the channel. And used to listen to so many, Robbie Vincent used to be on there, I think. And also... Uh, I remember uh, there was a DJ called Roscoe. He mm-hmm. was like, yeah, he was like my idol at that time. So I got into music very young and it was, for me, something that replaced the disattachment that I had as a child growing up in a children's home. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's why music became my saviour. <laughs> I think for a lot of us as well, yeah. And uh, it's a very similar journey. A lot of the people that we've spoken to as well, having a radio under their pillow at night and, you know, discovering all of this new music. It's kind of illicit in some way. The thing is, Matt, if I would have got caught, I would have, like, had sanctions for, like, a week or even some places actually being locked into a padded room because I've been naughty. No way. So that was the risk I was taking. Yeah, I wasn't allowed to not just listen to a radio, but have a transistor radio. It just wasn't allowed. Wow. So, I mean, do you think... 
having such that indelible that risk um do you think that's what drove you a little bit looking back into the music scene i don't know i think as an adult now you can only look back on your childhood and and reflect on what shaped you as a child growing up and when you grow up as a child you have nothing to base your childhood on so you don't look at your neighbor next door and say oh that child's having a better life than me yeah because you just don't comprehend those sorts of things so what i did as a child when i say a child i think anywhere between the age of nil and 11 11 years old i think you're sort of child then music came into my life uh but also at the same time um i was really inquisitive so i got into electronic as well you used to be able to buy these magazines called um electronic weekly or whatever and it taught you how to build amplifiers and taught you just simple things like you know what a diode does what a capacitor does what a resistor does so i got to really understand how because this we're talking about the 70s, I suppose, or mm. sort of late 60s, early 70s. So we're talking about sort of how electronic became much more advanced. And so I learned how to build amplifiers from components that I could buy online. Mm-hmm. You know, so I was in these children's homes and I was, you know, the staff would say, what are you doing? I was like, oh, just working on something. You know, the kids are going, what are you doing? I'll oh, wait and see, you know. And then suddenly in the community room where we had the table tennis and the snooker, you know, I'd suddenly like set everything up and just blast out loads of music. <laughs> and then we go, what the fuck's going on here? You know, um, and I used to take TVs apart, mm-hmm. uh, literally up to the age of nine, ten. Had a screwdriver or a knife and I had my hand in the, in, in the site in the back of TVs and I blew myself across the room quite a few times. <laughs> Yeah, quite a few times, literally. And I can honestly say that, yes, if you get an electric shock, it can blow you across the room. <laughs> um, I did that as a young age. Yeah. So I was banned from going anywhere within three meters of any electrical appliance. <laughs> and I was like 12 years old. Yeah. And I mean, do you think that that love for electronics kind of bled through into the electronic music scene and the music? Did that gives you an extra inquisitiveness into how people were making this type of music when that started to become more prevalent in the 80s? Interesting question. Growing up, I played around with the guitar, I played around with the piano, and I, I couldn't read music, but I could learn chords and sort of play mm-hmm. what I thought I could hear. I don't know. It's, it, 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 yes, in some ways, being fascinated by technology. Yeah, I remember like growing up with gramophones involved, you know, and going down to my mum's local shop, the record shop, and we'd buy a new valve for the gramophone because it had gone. So going from valves to that whole sort of transistor technology, I was very interested in that, of course. It was something I found fascinating. I was, I was also into maths at that time. I loved crosswords. And the music, I didn't see a connection. Mm-hmm. I, I really didn't see a connection between what I was listening to as a child growing up and what I was doing as a child, designing amplifiers and building things from electronics. For me, it was just like to be able to play it as loud as possible. <laughs> so, you know, so oh, I, I need this particular transistor or this particular capacitor. Mm. And that's going to take me like two weeks pocket money to get that. Um, but literally, I built my own circuit boards. I uh, had my own soldering irons, little screwdrivers. And, you know, I was that little child scientist, I suppose. Wow. And like, so how did that develop then into 
kind of what you first started to to do i mean researching this podcast it's my understanding that you started working for glastonbury booking jazz world and that was after a first visit to glastonbury in 1989 tell us about that story i remember i'm sure really thought about this i went to a festival when i was 10 years old and all i remember was naked people dancing and that's all i can remember and there's only one or two events that could possibly have been. Mm-hmm. It could have either been Stonehenge or it could have been the first Glastonbury. Wow. You know? Yeah. I cannot remember the pyramid, but the more I think about it and the more I try to remember, I think it was I think it was Glastonbury. I happened to be in a children's home at that particular time and the staff were casual workers, yeah, as they still are. But it was it was a hippie era, and mm-hmm. I remember them taking all of us to this festival. So I think that was Glastonbury Festival, or it could have been Stonehenge. Mm. And I just remember it was just quite bizarre. So I think my first Glastonbury experience was when I was ten years old. Yes, I think I might have gone back there in nineteen when I was 17, 77. That was in the days when literally on a Saturday afternoon you say to your mates, "Oh, should we go to Glastonbury?" Yeah. <laughs> and you just get in your car and you drive down there and you just walk around the perimeter fence and you find a way to get in mm-hmm. and that was it yeah you know i mean and, and there probably wasn't even a perimeter fence at that time yeah it was beautiful it was mm. lovely it was like and for me you know being only like you know late teens it was like a real eye-opener and, and very lovely so that's my first experience as a glass and week um the one, yeah, when I really started working at Glastonbury was probably 87. I used to work in Bristol at a pub, at a bar, and I was promoting as well. Mm-hmm. I was doing other things outside the bar. But there was this guy who used to come in, drop off this magazine called The Venue Magazine, and he did it every week. And I kind of knew him, he knew me, and, and it was a great magazine. It was all about Bristol. It was all about music, live music, what's going on. It was like the original what's on mm-hmm. magazine you know what's going on in bristol and it took me a while and then i realized that oh this is the guy who books the second stage at glastonbury you know not not you know not the jazz world but he actually books the second stage mm-hmm. and i just got chatting to him and he said oh yeah come on down why are you coming down dj you know because i i was also djing as well outside my bar work mm-hmm. and, and and also promoting in bristol at the same time and had been for many years and when i got there i realized that he had invited every other dj in bristol <laughs> to dj on that stage and it was only about djing in between the bands mm-hmm. at that stage yeah. i mean there was never sort of a, the dj is the set mm-hmm wasn't really there it was still very much about live music you know yeah and it so happened that i was i had my own pa at the time you know it's only about four thousand watts but i you know i i would do local gigs so i knew a lot about engineering i would set up the live music and when i promoted in the smaller clubs in bristol i would use my own pa because it obviously saved me loads of money mm-hmm. and so i got there and and then there was clearly no opportunity to to DJ in between the bands because every other up and coming great DJs were, mm-hmm. were, you know, were playing, you know, and I'm, I'm sure I can think of some of the names later. And so on the Friday night, it was funny on the Friday night, I just like thought, hang about, you know, I got my van here. And I, the reason I got my van because I could sleep in it, you know, put a mattress in the back, but also like, hang on, I've got a PA, I've got a generator, I've got decks, I've got everything here, you know, so 
I literally, I did say, I think I did ask Mark at the stage shut at 12 o'clock, and we're talking about the second stage here. Mm-hmm. So that would be equivalent to the enemy stage now. Yes, yeah. You know, and I just said, look, can I just like set up for a few hours? And he said, I've got no power. I went, oh, I can sort myself out. And so literally, I just drove my truck in front of the, the second stage, and we just like set it up and we just had a rave and we did that on the Friday and the Saturday and on the first night I remember oh bless his soul lovely guy from Bristol and I only knew as Indian Paul mm. he, he worked in all the all the clubs you know all the coolest clubs he was there no one no one fucked with him do you know what I mean he was Indian Paul yeah and I remember he was he was like looking after the security at that time yeah. on that area and I remember he on the Friday, he came rushing over to me going, oh, what's up? And he looked at me and went, oh, it's you. <laughs> I went, yeah, <laughs> it's cool. And then, yeah, I had like John Stapleton. I had like, those are great DJs from Bristol at mm. Glastonbury. And we did it for two nights and it was fantastic. It was, uh, it was amazing. So that was my first official, unofficial <laughs> introduction to Glastonbury. And just to finish off on that story as mm. well, when it came to the Sunday, when we were told that we couldn't do it, we couldn't do it again, you know. But I also knew the PA company on that stage, and I had a chat name, and I knew that it would take them at least an hour, an hour and a half to unpack everything. So I said, look, can I just set my deck up on the stage, literally on a, on a riser, and just play some shit? And, and we did the same thing on two, on the on the Sunday. Wow. And, and that was like, there must have been 3,000 people there. So that was my introduction to Glastonbury. Mm-hmm. The other thing about that weekend, when I went there, I realized that I'd say three quarters of the lineup on that stage that weekend was all the bands that I was and am working with in Bristol. So I was like, oh, hang about. This guy at Glastonbury is booking the bands that I've been working with. And so um, I just said to him, look, I'd love to come back next year and get involved and, you know, help, help you book the stage because mm-hmm. three quarters of the stage you got is the stuff that I work with anyway. And I was like only 27 or, yeah. and that was fine. And then what happened the following year, my good friend, Martin Alborn, uh, got involved with um, Glastonbury Festival and he introduced the enemy Mm-hmm. to michael mm-hmm. and so the second stage then became the enemy stage mm-hmm. and so it was like mark didn't have a stage mm-hmm. and so i remember talking to him for in the preceding year up to the next festival because i was like i was really keen there i was like wow fucking hell this guy is running the stage at glastonbury and like it's my fucking lineup <laughs> you know what I mean? it's like it, what's he doing copying me and i realized that he was and copying a lot of other people you know and so we didn't have a stage. And then, you know, Michael said, oh, maybe. And I think Michael, I think Mark might have, and Mark Simmons, and mm-hmm. I pay ultimate respect to Mark Simmons because mm-hmm. without Mark Simmons, I would not have ever got involved with Glassery, I think. So, mm-hmm. um, but that's another story. But <laughs> I, I do have ultimate respect uh, for Mark. So Michael suggested having a jazz stage. Mm-hmm. You know, and so I got, that was my real proper involvement with Glastonbury I was kind of official I was known you know I met Michael met Gene at that time you know sadly she passed away um a few years later Mm. but lovely amazing 
yeah, I have a lot of history with Glastonbury. So yes, so I got involved mm-hmm. with Glastonbury, I think it was 87. I might have been the first year of the Jazz World stage. And I remember that we had Galliano was our headline mm-hmm. at. Mm-hmm. So we're in that whole talking loud, mm-hmm. you know, era. If you look at the records as well, it's kind of, you know, street, what was it? Streetwise or? Street Sounds. Street Sounds, yeah. yeah. There's a guy called Ali who ran it, didn't he? Amazing, yeah. amazing guy. I met him quite a few times and uh, I really admired his, yeah, just his enthusiasm uh, for music. And and it's funny because what he did, he just reintroduced the music that we were all listening to 15 years before, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I started DJing when I was 13. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I, I would like to just, I think this is really important. Yeah. This is very important in my life. Mm-hmm. Yes, one was the music, yes. Mm-hmm. And two was the fact that, that I was brought up in care. Didn't mean that my parents fucked me up. The system fucked me up. Mm-hmm. And I got locked up uh, in a detention centre when I was nine years old. Not because I'd done anything criminal, but because I'd been expelled from so many schools in Bristol that no school or no children's home would take me. So they locked me up for six weeks. So after spending 13 years in care, mm-hmm. right, being moved every 18 months on average, different social worker, different school, different set of circumstances, different home. Yeah. Um, the authorities thought that I would be really good. It would be good to send him home to his mother, who I have never spent more than one night in my whole life between the age of nil and one with her. Mm-hmm. Which is, and the home life was very chaotic. I'm the youngest of I'm the youngest of seven. Mm-hmm. Uh, all of us were put into care. So they sent me home. <laughs> they sent me home at the start of the summer holidays in '73. And the local fairground, the local fairground was uh, was there. It was in Hartcliffe in Bristol. Mm-hmm. And I went and worked on the fairground, knowing that in six weeks' time I would have to like join the local comprehensive school. Mm-hmm. You know, but. I joined the fair and I went and worked there and it was there for two weeks and they left and I left with them. <laughs> I ran away with them. <laughs> you ran away with the fair. And it took like six months for the authorities and the police to catch up with me. Mm-hmm. And ironically, they caught up with me at Glastonbury Fair. And that's where social services and the police came and picked me up and took me back to the home. Yeah. <laughs> um, the reason I say this is really important is because despite like it took them six weeks, whatever, to find me and catch up with me, and I was only 13, I was given a bed, I was fed, I was given a purpose. And for me, it was like that was an, an attachment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when they when they took me back to the children's homes, I stayed in contact with the fair. So living in, in an institution, instead of going home at all the school holidays, they would pick me up, the fair people, mm-hmm. David and Carol, much respect to them. They're the closest thing to my parents. Yeah. They were arranged to pick me up and take me to the fair and I would work on the fair with them and then they dropped me back off and I'd come back with a wad of money, you know, because like, what are you doing for the school holidays? Yeah. I went nuts. I went and worked on the fair. I got like, what oh, buddy. But when I when I was fifteen, it was clear that I wasn't going to go go back and live with my mum. Mm-hmm. But David and Carol from the fair, they offered to be my guardians. So they became my guardians. They went to court when I was fifteen years old, and they became my guardians. Yeah. And I went to live on the fairground. Yeah. And I lived on the fairground full time. Travelled around with the fair until I was eighteen years old. Mm-hmm. And at that time, I was 
promoted within the fair thing, you know, so that I had my own machine. Mm-hmm. You know, it was a cyclone twist, and I would be responsible for that machine. So I would like check the safety of it every day, clean it, yeah. make sure it's maintained. But also, I'd sit at the pay box with the microphone playing the music. <laughs> they, you know, David and Carol, they they could never understand why I was always the last fairground machine to close at the end of the night because I, there would just be loads of people mm-hmm. around and I'd say it's the music yeah and so they would give me they would give me money so they would say oh he's 20 pounds don't buy some records so I would go to the record shop wherever I was traveling mm-hmm. all over the all over the country I knew the American in- imports because I was I was reading blues and souls yeah. I was reading black music at yeah. that time I knew what was, you know, I was into, already into Roy Ayers, I was already into Bob Mark, you know. So part of, when I say that music saved my life, David and Carol Wynn also saved my life. And they gave me that, that attachment, that grounding, mm-hmm. and they caught me at the right time. Yeah, I could easily have gone down a road of being locked up all my life, being a fucking junkie, being a criminal. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, I have lots of stories also that help me decide in my own mind that this is not what I want to do. Yeah. I, you know, I might have been brought up in care. I might have been written off by, a, you know, by a, you know, a psychiatrist when I'm fucking two years old. I proved you all wrong. Yeah, you did prove them all wrong. And how great to have that moment at, like you say, at the right time at such a young age, because sometimes those moments can't or don't happen until you know, you're a bit further down that down that path that there's no return from. And so being in the booth and playing these records to an audience and whatever, that's what gave you a taste for performing and getting into music and travelling around. It all sounds like, like to me, when you look back on it, it's all come together. No, yeah, it did. Honestly, like, God, I must have been like 16. And I'm, like, I'm, I'm in the pay box with my record deck, which would be on springs because the machine's going like this so you get the record straight and i've got a microphone and i know it sounds corny now but you know all right if you want to stay in that car hold on to that bar <laughs> the ladder you scream the faster you go it was all that even before that i was doing private parties for families and friends and it was it was back in the day when the dj talked mm-hmm. you know what i mean the dj talked yeah, in between yeah. the tunes you know or played a couple of tunes and didn't say anything you know mm-hmm. i used to dj in a nightclub so uh, my older sister she was like she was also brought up in care mm-hmm. um but she uh when i was 13 she was like 18 19 she was being a nurse and you know, working working a lot um and also loving music, working in, in a nightclub. She took me, took me to my first nightclub, which was the dugout in Bristol. Mm-hmm. You know, I was 13 years old. I borrowed my older brother's overcoat, Matt, to look older. And I just sat in the kitchen all night helping her do burgers. But anyway, um, she used to go out with one of Rose, uh, Rose Royce, mm-hmm. you know, like you know, a car wash. Yeah. Uh, very famous in the 70s and 80s. And she was going out with a guy called Trey Stone. Rolls Royce were playing in Bristol and Della, my sister, wanted to organise an after-show party for them. And she went to quite a famous club on the Triangle in Bristol called Vadim's, run by basically gangsters. <laughs> so he, they said, yeah, you can have the party. And, and so my De- uh, my sister said, I want my I want my kid brother to play, mm-hmm. you know? And he, they were like, no, it's so either my kid brother plays 
or it, the party doesn't happen. Anyway, I played the pub was packed, you know, and I just played this amazing jazz funk, and you know that it was our whole era. Mm-hmm. And uh, I got a job at that time. I was working in a supermarket warehouse, earning I don't know seventy five pounds a week. Mm-hmm. And suddenly, after that party, uh, the, the nightclub owner came up to me and he said, you know, I'll pay you 170 pounds a week. 18, 19 years old. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> for that. Um, so yeah, so that's that's another story how I got into into DJing yeah. more. Yeah. Um but I was always I think I'm I, I was always just just a party DJ. I was just like a friend of the family, you know, who had I had some decks, mm-hmm. you know. I had, I had, you know, I had a couple of little boxes of records at that time, and I knew how to play. You know, I was like collecting the popular music, yeah, mainly black music mm-hmm. at that time. And yeah, that's um, yeah, that was uh, that was another thing I did. <laughs> yeah. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Cool. I mean, so, you know, you were, by the time you did rock up at Glastonbury with your, with your sound system and whatever, and, you know, you're playing to putting on mini raves to 3000 people kind of semi-legally on the site. Um, you're already, you know, got the fairground patter behind the mic and the skills behind the decks um i mean you know starting on the jazz world side of things um the dance uh tent began in 1995 i mean obviously that's a five-year difference there's a story behind it yeah so how did how did this idea grow okay so we started the jazz world stage I was working along alongside Mark Simmons, mm-hmm. um, mainly doing all, all the programming. So talking to the agents, talking to the managers, and we delivered the Jazz World stage for five years. I remember at that time, Michael never knew where to put us. So like we literally moved 
every year the jazz world, jazz stage was in the it was called jazz stage the first couple of years and then it went to jazz world mm-hmm. but every year it moved into a different place and then probably after five years or so we managed to persuade michael to let us have a a workshop tent uh this must have been what i don't know 91 maybe so we were running this for a few years and then one year i booked this pa his sound system from the midlands i'm not going to mention their name because you did fuck me over (laughs) (laughs) Um, but they were like the unofficial after show unofficial Mm -hmm. tents well it's like we got the backstage but then they played all night they played all fucking night and i i asked them to switch off and they wouldn't switch off I did later switch people off, but at that time I didn't. I remember Arabella Churchill, very good friend of Michael Evis, and um, runs a circus and theatre. Mm-hmm. You know, she came out early in the morning shouting at me, and yeah, I felt completely powerless. Um, anyway, that happened. It turned out that Michael got fined for that incident. Mm. You know, he got fined by the council for yeah, an overreach of the of the license. Mm-hmm. Well, I can say this: Mark blamed. Blame me. Mm-hmm. I made the booking, and fair enough, I did make the booking, but I I don't see it as all my fault. So I remember going on holiday in January for a couple of weeks to Spain and coming back, and I just wanted to see Michael. Um, can't remember what I went to see him about, just because something felt uneasy, and he kind of said, "Well, this happened. I got fined, and you know, I know Mark." I've worked with Mark for like, you know, 15 years or whatever. And I don't know who you are. And and basically I didn't have a job. Yeah. That was it. It was like after sort of five years working with Jazz World, I was suddenly, you know, not there. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know, we just started talking about other things. And then he we started talking about dance music. And he was saying, oh, do you think we should have a dance tent? I said, well, that'd be a really good idea, Michael. You know, that'd be a great idea. And... I know that he was being seduced by some of the, the big clubs at that time mm-hmm. about doing something. And he sort of said to me, well, he said, do you know Massive Attack? Yeah, 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 I kind of know them. Do you know Porter's Head? Yeah, I kind of know them as well. Well, why don't we have a dance tent and let's get them on? Well, why don't you have a chat to the, the guys who run the acoustic tent just to get, you know, just get an idea of how I run things. And, and that was it. That was the brief, you know. So I went off and um, talked to Massive Attack. And um, it turned out that Massive Attack didn't want a feature. If anything, they wanted to have their whole day. So that was fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we can give them their whole day. But it turned out that Port's Head and Massive Attack wouldn't play in the same tent. No way. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, you know... Um, yeah, I've heard lots of rumours why mm-hmm. that, that was the case, but that was the situation. Mm-hmm. So it turned out on that year, 95, Portishead played in the acoustic tent and Massive Attack played in the dance tent. Wow. So was was what was the battle there? Was there a winner and a loser, do you think? Or was it, did someone make a call in terms of who played where? Or was it just a case of, you know, you spoke to Massive Attack first, maybe, and they got their dance tent? I've got to be careful here because I respect both bands mm-hmm. and... It was very early in their careers. Certainly, I remember that massive attack. You know, when the Gulf War kicked off, they had to drop the attack and they just went with massive, Mm -hmm. you know. And yeah, clearly any band in their development, that's a big thing for them. Mm -hmm. Um, I just think like, I put it down to like strong management on both sides. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the the management on both sides wanted the best result um, for their invitation to come and play the festival. Yeah. And with hindsight, looking back on it now, yeah, 
it worked for both. Yeah. You know, Porter's Head were not going to do it all there. Porter's Head was going to come and do a fucking amazing set. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Massive Attack, they're, they're geared up because they're, they're DJs, you know, they're street, and they look at a whole program, you mm-hmm. know what I mean? A whole vibe that they want for that day, and yeah. that's what they wanted. They yeah. wanted to decorate the tent. They wanted, you know, they wanted complete control mm-hmm. over what they did. And maybe management felt that, okay, that's great. Um, you know, two bands in Bristol or Portishead Head in Bristol or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe it wasn't right for them to like be sort of hooked in into the same bag. Yeah. And I think with hindsight, I think it was a good move, actually. Yeah. I think it was, it was okay. I mean, don't get me wrong, it was fought with complications on the day, which I don't really want to go into, you know, but that was the, yeah, that was the first year of the dance tent. Yeah. I remember, when we, I think we had Club Dog involved as, as well at that particular time. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, my, my, my memory is quite vague. I don't have any notes on previous glasses in front of me, so... <laughs> so. Next question. <laughs> <laughs> That's often the best way. I mean, um, I, I suppose, like, not specifically about 95, but I suppose more in kind of general about the dance tent and that's that, that arrival of that at Glastonbury. You know, historically, obviously, it was always... Um, a guitar rock music type like live music type festival in that way you know not towards the electronic scene what did you find in those first nascent years of of that that there was perhaps a resistance from the audience towards this or were people engaging with it and really just giving it a fair crack i think it was a little bit of a surprise for me uh, with regards to how popular dance music was i'm not a raver mm-hmm. You know, I never, I never went to, you know, raves and I never took E, you know, so I'm not into that whole rave culture, which was like very big and coming up at that time. I was very much, I love live music. I still do. Uh, but I also do appreciate DJs. But even at that time, I was like, I had a conflict between like, well, why am I paying you as much as I am for a band? of seven people mm-hmm. you know and yeah i understand market market forces and all that business but if you look at the dance tent because we had like three births within that area dance tent dance village silver haze mm-hmm. um you can see that i was very much geared towards live music even if it was electronic live music mm-hmm. you know what i mean yeah you know I just felt I wanted to see the musicians playing the music instead of just pushing buttons. Yeah. And also, you know, saying that people do, you know, they say, Malcolm, you know, you, you start to dance, you know, glassing, that's quite a, quite an achievement. But then I say, well, look, and I admit this, it was just being in, in the right place at the right time. Mm-hmm. Having that conversation with Michael at that time inspired him to something I'm sure he be, he had been thinking about. But, you know, just ask me the question. Yeah, I can do that. I can do that. And I also did Michael's wedding when he got married to Liz. You know, I organized his wedding on his front garden, mm-hmm. um, which is a beautiful day. And also did Emily Evers's 21st birthday party in her back garden. Wow. Uh, at uh, Worthy Farm, which was, um, the theme was, Emily wanted the theme of Queen of the Desert. Is it? Oh, Priscilla, Queen of the Desert? Yes. I think so. So we all had to be sort of, you know, deserty. Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember uh, dressing up as a steak and uh, and DJing. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> so 
my relationship with the family at, at Glastonbury is, is very close. Mm-hmm. Um, so going back to, yeah, I was into live music more than I was into DJs. And obviously, yeah. as we progress, what I found was after a few years that I wasn't able to portray all the different genres of dance music. Mm-hmm. It was like, it was vast. It was yeah. like, fuck, it was this and it was that. It was like, yeah, all these different, you know, I couldn't keep up with the genres, you know. I went back to Michael, I can't remember what year it was, maybe 2008 or nine, and said, look, we can't represent all the different genres of dance music with one tenth. Mm-hmm. And also in that in that history of the, of the dance tenth, you know, from 90, 95 to you know to 99, whatever, we grew every year. Yeah. You know, so the first year, the capacity of the tent was like two and a half thousand. Mm-hmm. The second year, it was like four thousand. You know, we went up by, by the system. In actual fact, by the third year when Daft Punk played, yeah, you know, we were up, like, it was a fucking shed. You know what I mean? It was like it was like walking into like fucking Amazon warehouse. You know, we had a mixing tower that was like sixty meters high. Wow! I remember that's my favorite part of Glastonbury. If you want to ask me any favorite part of Glastonbury, and Daft Punk has only ever played there once, mm. and I'm so proud of that. They did it under my watch. But I remember being on the highest part of the mixing tower, which is obviously always at the back of the tent, where all the video and all the controls go on. For those who don't know, everything happens at the back of the tent. And we were right at the top, so we had a complete view of everything. And it was amazing. Every time the bass dropped in, mm-hmm. yeah, it was like England scoring a goal. Like the roar was just... I could actually feel the roar... Mm in my stomach you know 60 meters in the air over the music it was just like the most incredible it, yeah it's the most incredible experience of my life actually and i'm still quite young then i was like what 30 28 <laughs> <laughs> i mean on that point in terms of artists and things like that what was the reaction when you were booking people and, and bands and artists to be not necessarily even in those early years, but just generally, like, were they honoured to be invited to play or was there a bit of trepidation in terms of, like, a bit frightening to be invited to play? What how, what did you find the response was usually? Another interesting question. I'm a very blunt person, so I was already promoting in Bristol, mm-hmm. sort of so dealing with bands and some bands that had played Glastonbury or I would perhaps book for Glastonbury. I learned quite fast the world of agencies and agents. Mm-hmm. So I realized that I had to make a relationship with the agents more so than the bands themselves. And when I was promoting in Bristol, I would pretty much, it'd be 50-50, like be half management, half dealing directly with the band, and the other half would be through agents. I found it quite overwhelming, to be perfectly honest. I used to um, make a habit of going to see all the agents Maybe in November, December, you know, I sort of set aside a, a few days that I can be in London and I go and see them all. And I just get bombarded with like, this is happening, this is coming up. Yeah. And to start with, it was quite overwhelming, you know, because I realized that, oh my God, I don't know this. I don't know that. Yeah. And then I started feeling a little bit intimidated. This guy's running the dance tent but he doesn't really know everything about about music or doesn't really understand what the scene is. Mm -hmm. But I suppose at the time I started feeling like that, I had my kids growing up at the right time. (laughs) So I can honestly say that certainly over the last 10 years, my children have been very much a big influence on how I have developed from Dance Tent, Dance Village, 
and also uh, into uh, Silver Haze. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember when the kids were really young, I was still programming Jazz World. So going back to the Jazz World thing, when I started the dance tent, I did that for a couple of years. And then the person who was programming the Jazz World, Michael asked me if I could program the Jazz World as well. So I did that for 11 years. Mm-hmm. So I programmed the Jazz World and also I did the Dance Tent, Dance Village. Um, and then Michael said to me, you need to make a decision. Do you want the Jazz World or do you want the Dance Village? Mm-hmm. And I made the decision that I would go with the Dance Village because there's much more flexibility, seven stages. Yeah. Yeah, just, you know, a lower budget. And I think going back to your question as well, um, it soon turned out over a few years certainly when we got into the dance tent and certainly silver haze mm-hmm. we realized that we were breaking all the bands mm-hmm. not not the rock bands or the you know the indie bands whatever but it was soul or it's black or it's like urban music it was coming through the dance that it's first mm-hmm. you know and then silver haze and then you know and then going into like the other stage or you know going up to the other stages so i feel really proud of the fact that i think the dance tent dance village silver haze is like yeah, it's been a transition mm-hmm. uh, for a lot of bands mm-hmm. uh, into their career. Yeah, I mean, and Silver Haze, what it what, what, from those small beginnings of just a tent, like you say, is getting bigger every time, and then into the Dance Village, and now into what has been renamed. I think was it twenty thirteen? It changed into Silver Haze. I mean, that that ambition for that space when it first arrived at the festival, what what was the ambition for that? Was it, okay, this is a fresh sheet of paper, we're completely upgrading everything from the dance village, or was it like, like a natural progression? I was very conscious. That was like, hang on, this is old. This is like dance village. Well, let's come up with a, a, a new name. And uh, did approach Michael about it, and we talked about it, and we came up with Silver Haze because that is actually the name of one of the fields that we look after. Mm-hmm. That's the old traditional name. They call it Silver Haze. And um, we didn't realize, oh, was it? Oh, did we come up with another name first? Can't remember now. I think we came up with another name first. It was like, no, 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 that's, that relates to drugs. <laughs> and then we came up with Silver Haze. Mm-hmm. So I think we came up with some other name first. And it was like, oh, no, let's call it Silver Haze. So, yeah, that was Michael's choice of name. Mm-hmm. And it was great. And the funny thing about it is, like, Dan used to do all the signage throughout the whole site, assumed, and we should never assume, um, bless you, Dan. Um, he wrote Hayes wrong. Oh. So he did, like, sort of 200 signs with <laughs> Silver Hayes. I sort of remember going to him, going, like, two days before the gates opened, going, oh, no. oh Dan, by the way, <laughs> all the names are about wrong. But, um, no, it, it was fine. It, it was good. Um, yeah. yeah, it's been an amazing journey at Silver Haze. Yeah, there's there's so much going on there as well in terms of the breadth of genres and whatever involved, not just in kind of dance music as well. You know, you've got roots, dub, reggae, all of those kind of different flavours all being introduced as well. I mean, how important is it, do you think, to offer that diversity to a festival audience? Uh, really important, I think. And also, I couldn't, uh, you know, I'm going to pay homage to a few other people as well because I couldn't have done this on my own. Mm-hmm. You know, I've worked with some amazing people. A lot of people have worked with me personally, either at Jazz World or at Dance Tent or whatever, and gone on to, you know, run their own festivals, etc. But I think definitely when we when we went from Dance Village to Silver Haze, we brought in some new, you know, new programmers, you know, some fresh blood, 
uh, into the thing. That's when um, Tom and Dave from Team Love, mm-hmm. uh, who are really fantastic, beautiful, successful music-loving festival organisers. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, I mean, even when they came in, you know, Tom started off working in the admin, you know, on production and, and slowly, slowly, you know, they worked their way through. And so I've always been, yeah, I've always wanted to like allow other people to be able to use me as a platform to go forward or learn, mm-hmm. you know, that little bit of aspect in the music industry. I think I might have digressed a little bit there. So with people like Tom and Dave and also my daughters mm-hmm. you know, and my son, it wasn't just me programming Silver Haze. It was like the family. Yeah. I think that's why we were able to like put that diversity on. Mm-hmm. But okay, they all take the piss out of me. I spent a lot of time sort of traveling around the world, going to different music events, meeting bands from you know, other countries, continents, and wanted to give them a platform as well mm-hmm. um, within the dance phase and also Silver Haze. So one of the things I was quite proud of with Silver Haze is the fact that we had this world stage. So we had this like open air stage within the seven stages that was featuring music that you wouldn't see yeah. normally. Uh, but I've, I've seen them, I've been there. I've, I, I think diversity is really, really important. Mm-hmm. And I don't mind if people come and see something and go, oh, I didn't like that. Great. Okay. Yeah. Fine. But also, you know, there's a lot of other people who did. Mm-hmm. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. So when you're programming something, I still go back to my own original gut feeling. Mm-hmm. It's like why I started promoting. I would look at a band or look at a, an idea and I want to put that idea on. Yeah. And I think that this makes me feel good. Yeah, I like this. I think I can sell this to other people. Mm -hmm. I used to, when I was DJing, when I was young, you know, I don't know, 16, 17, I used to organize coach trips to like Froome or Cheltenham or Gloucester. Mm -hmm. And I would just be the guest DJ. But I would organize like one or two coaches to come along with me. So it'd be all my mates in the pub. (laughs) For weeks I'd be going, yeah, do you want to, do you want to coach? Yeah, 4.30, yeah, 10 for me, don't forget, right? Okay, blah, blah, blah. You know, so I would take like 70 people with me mm-hmm. and I wouldn't get paid from the club, but I'd make my money from the 50p on top of it cost me for the coach, if you understand what I mean. Yeah. So I got into promoting quite young, but I love it. I mean, at the end of the day, Matt, at the end of the day, there is no better feeling whether the venue's packed or whether there's very few people there, but just looking at people and see, are they enjoying what they're seeing? And I've promoted all my life. I've probably lost as much as I made. But I think I can honestly say that I put good gigs on. Mm, yeah, I think as well, the overarching feeling we've had when we've, when we've spoken to other promoters is, you know, you do it for the love. You don't do it to make the money, certainly. And yeah, like you say, being able to present something to someone and seeing them enjoy it, if that gives you back the enjoyment that they're having as well then you know if you can make a living out of that then that's great isn't it yeah and it, it wasn't much of a living <laughs> <laughs> i mean promoting is like gambling it, it really is mm. um but you gamble with your creative emotions you mm. know it's like i love this it's brilliant other people should see this mm. you know so a lot of my promotions in bristol i would rely on my reputation mm. And I introduced lots of new bands to Bristol 
It wasn't about whether you knew the band. It was like, well, who was promoting it? Mm. You know. So the gigs I did in Bristol were all about, yeah, it was about, well, who's putting that on? Mogley's yeah. putting that on. Oh, that's going to be good. I don't know this, but I'm going to come along and see it. And I'm very thankful that um, I think I chose good music and mm. then I've gotten to Club Night and obviously yeah. started, started to do these on yeah. as well. I mean, so yeah, you were the trailblazing tastemaker, like you say, if people are looking at, okay, well, you know, if, if Malcolm's chosen that or he's into that, then I know that I'm going to enjoy that. I suppose if you come to a few of my gigs, then you understand my style of music. Mm-hmm. So it, it's about, oh, well, I like the last gig he did or the one before. So maybe, oh, maybe I'll come and check, check that out. Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I would work on that reputation and then obviously i would put the, the obvious ones on like i don't know Nitin sawney public enemy do you know what i mean and it's yeah as a promoter it's always about being the first or getting the right band maintain your credibility is there anyone over your promoting career you know whether it be in bristol or during the glastonbury years or whatever that you've really pursued and well i suppose firstly is there one that you've really pursued and then got across the line that you're proud of and so pleased with and has there been another one that you've been pursuing or did pursue and it never happened for whatever reason and you kind of kick yourself over i think my proudest gig and i didn't help to take them across the line but i gave them their first european gig the roots Mm -hmm. and i can't even remember what that would be what 93 four something like that I, i don't know yeah yeah, so there was a tiny little club run by a lovely family. It used to be a supermarket, and they turned it into a club. And we built a stage. I, I, I built a stage for them, and we I booked the Roots to play here yeah, at the Mallet Club, which is like 200 capacity. And uh, they turned up in their tour bus, and I fed them at my flat, which is just around the corner. You know, it's like real sort of old school. Like, yeah, the, the promoter is like, oh, I'll come back to mine, you know, I'll cook you some food, and and um so they went on stage two hours late uh but when they went on stage they played for like two and a half hours and it was just like the most amazing gig that is like the best gig i've yeah i've seen stevie wonder i've seen but to see the roots in the malam it was like history in the making i and i think after that i probably booked them three or four times Mm -hmm. after that a couple of times in bristol and they played for me at glastonbury they headlined for me in Glastonbury, when I did a hip hop day, mm-hmm. uh, they were my um, headline acts. I remember Michael came with his family and he sat in the pit. And I was obviously in the pit and he's going, What are they saying? And I said, Well, to be honest, Michael, I can't quite understand myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that was um, one of my proudest gigs. Mm. The other question was, Matt? Yeah, it was so who have you relentlessly pursued and for whatever reason it's never happened and you've always kind of kicked yourself about or anything like that? Is there anyone that springs to mind? Oh, too many. Too many. Uh, Too many. Um, Lady Six. New Zealand, Maui, singer-songwriter, works with um, her husband, their music, lyrics, uh, just off the scale. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, there's too many. I could I could mention Yuma from Malaysia. Yeah, I've been collecting music all my life. I thought, mm. yeah, I can't even get my CDs out because there's too many. And then you know, all my all my computers are full up with different sorts of music. I'm never going to be able to listen to everything. Maybe when I'm sort of you know not able to like be compositors or 
you know, be able to look after myself, then I'll, I'll have time to finally sit down and listen to all my music. But mm-hmm. certainly all my vinyl has a history and a, a story, you know, every every record pretty yeah. much i could tell you a story about it <laughs> yeah i mean um so i want to circle back a bit to to glaston and just talk generally about the kind of challenges with the festival um i've been i've been a number of times and i've been when it's got a quagmire i've been when it's too muddy it's too wet or even one year where i went it was actually too hot and people were cheering when you know a cloud would go over the sun and you know it's crazy but i mean can you think of um what what are the challenges for you when you're actually there and the heavens open and everything starts getting muddy you know what are you thinking as someone who's in charge behind the scenes well i know where you're going with this yeah you're asking about this shit mud situation <laughs> aren't you you, just, you want to hear it from the horse's mouth yeah yeah it was uh i think it was the same year that we might have even shut the field off no no it wasn't that was another year um so basically we had so much rain uh, and where the dance tent was, all the water was gathering at the stage. So at one time, the water got up to maybe 18 inches. And with a metallic stage and all that electrics, it was like close the tent. Mm-hmm. So we closed the tent and we brought site services in, you know, like the Glassby team. And we dug a well near the stage, right, the lowest point. We dug a well about three meter diameter with a digger then we were meant to bring in suckers to like suck the water out mm-hmm. yeah from the well mm-hmm. so we bought one of the one of the machines that would normally like pick up from the toilets okay so it came in backed up we put the hose in and then literally literally for a split of a second yeah maybe i don't know maybe four seconds mm-hmm. it was on discharge instead of sucking in so like loads of shit came out you know, and it so happens that the council were there at the same time. They witnessed it. And to be honest, it was like we had a digger there. We could have just dug around it, you know, but they insisted that we drain. And then we, we had to get like truckloads of lime to come in and we had to disinfect the whole place. So that's the proper story behind, you know. But also there was an um, old friend of mine called Simon Glynn who at that time was running Jazz World as coordinator. And uh, within a few, literally within an hour, people were walking around with laminate saying, official, the dance tent is full of shit. <laughs> so it's like, it was like his little pun of like, oh, dance music, shit. Do you know what I mean? So it's like, official, the dance tent is full of shit. And yeah, of course, the media picked up on it mm. and uh, it, became, um, it became quite a famous story. Yeah, um, yeah, it's one of the most famous ones. But there's been loads of there's been loads of uh, stories. You know, having apps turn up when it's muddy and not even you know insisting on driving them right to the back of the stage, and even then they won't get out because it's muddy, and so we have to come along with plastic bags, you know, or they or or find them brand new Wellington boots, yeah, so that they can put them on inside their tour bus, yeah. you know, you know, it, it's just like. But then we've also had people who like bottle up the mud and take it home <laughs> and sell it. It's like, what do you do? Yeah, I mean, you know, you're you're working through that period as well. You know, it's um, during that festival weekend. How are you 
managing to you know do you enjoy yourself at any point is it like a nine to five you're always on you managing to see any acts you know how do you work through that and you know enjoy yourself as well well i think i think through glass and has taught me one thing is the art of delegation <laughs> and, to able, and to be able to delegate that did take me a long time i remember you know even when I was running the dance tents and even jazz world, I would take on so much and want to do so much. And I, yeah, my children accuse me of, of doing it now that mm-hmm. I always take on more than I need to just delegate that. So it took me a while to delegate, but that it's all about the art. It is about the art of delegation. So eventually through amazing, amazing people that I've worked with, um, want to give homage to uh, Luz Fitzpatrick, who's been working with me for, many many years uh as my sidekick and number two so i don't know having the the, the faith and the confidence Mm -hmm. in delegating that task to somebody else so lou would oversee everything that i did you know what i mean and i'd say to her that i'll deal with that i'll deal with that i'll deal with this so she knew on the weekend i would deal with overall production the unique customer experience Mm -hmm. so i would be the customer you know what I mean? So I would go around the venues, talk to talk to my production, but be out in the audience, see how the audience is feeling it, mm-hmm. and so that 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 would be my role. Lou would be dealing with the nuts and bolts of it all. Yeah, all the communications between the stages, security, stewarding. You know, so I knew that that was in hand, and that would all also be delegated down to other managers of the different roles and the different things that they're dealing with yeah yes so on the weekend yeah i would be the promoter you know i would go around check on my staff make sure everyone's happy Mm -hmm. but also you know do my best to meet the agents meet the managers meet the occasional artists i wasn't really ever ever really interested and i don't mean this against any artist who's ever played for me Uh I have ultimate respect, but I'm not that kind of starstruck person, mm-hmm. you know, that I need to go and meet the artist to feel that I've done that gig. I really appreciate what they've done. And that's why I've booked them or I've been involved with what they do. It's not important for me to meet them personally. So I won't want to impose myself on them anyway. Mm-hmm. A couple of times I do. I remember when the kids were young. I would have to, mm-hmm. you know, dad, dad, I want to meet, oh, yeah, I want to meet this person, I want to meet that, you know, so, but not so much now. Yeah. I think it's more important to speak with the production crew, mm-hmm. the agent, the manager, and nine times out of ten, they're, you know, they're very grateful, thankful, mm-hmm. and really appreciative that we've, not just me, but the team, we, we wanted to book that act, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. To come and play, come and play Silver Hayes, yeah. Yeah. And uh, when you're booking the acts, like, you know, you're discovering all this new music and you've already said, you know, it's very difficult to stay on top of genres, on top of all the new music that's coming out. Um, Is there anything that you've booked and then you've seen at the festival and like that has really surprised you and really like, wow, you know, I did not expect that or I've never heard of these guys, but they're incredible or what? uh, Take me through any of those moments you can think of. Very little, to be honest, Matt. Um, (laughs) I'm a little bit bit of a control freak, so I like to know what I'm putting on. So I don't think I can honestly say, well, maybe, you know, maybe a few years into Silver Haze when there's, you know, I've got like, you know, three or four programmers. Yeah, of course, I don't know everything. 
I remember coming across Little Dragon, mm-hmm. uh, which Tom and Dave booked at Team Love like many, many years ago. And just like, yeah, before that, I didn't know them. And that, you know, that was great, like, you know, electronic music. But but also, you know, I tried to introduce Tom and Dave and other people to, you know, some of the electronic music that I've been listening to, which is more worldwide. Mm-hmm. I'm, I've always, yeah, I'm always like, yeah, just want to look outside the country as well as inside the country. Yeah, yeah. And I suppose it's, it's harking back to being that tastemaker from your promotional days as well in terms of, you know, this is on you. This is your name, you know, up there and, you know, people are invested in you. You don't want to be putting on things that you might not necessarily be familiar with and, you know, might tarnish that good reputation. Yeah, but also that's, a, that's also part of, letting go as well isn't it it's like having faith in yeah. other people's taste in music and what they think should be being put on mm-hmm. i think like running silver haze has been a mixture of what's obvious that should be put on and like what should we introduce people to mm-hmm. and i was quite surprised uh with silver haze because um and also with the dance village to some extent that people would just come and spend the whole weekend in our area and not not necessarily go to the other areas, you know, mm-hmm. unless they want to really late at night and they go to the southeast corner. Yeah. You know what I mean? But generally, they just like spend the whole day down in Silver Haze because there was so much diversity within the area and it's pleasant. You know, it's like easy on the eye. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, in terms of that letting go and, um, you know, feeling the confidence in having that team around you that can move it on with or without you. I mean, um, Silver Haze is now being looked after by your two daughters. Is that right? As well as the Love International guys? Yeah, it's mainly mainly the Love International guys. Yeah. And my daughters are, are involved with programming and uh, development. Yeah. My ambition is that I will stay ambassador and... Uh, <laughs> I look after the backstage vibe. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, apart from that, what was your advice to them? Or I suppose had they been involved just so much over the years that they kind of knew what they were taking on? I really don't have any advice for them at all. Um, like I said, you know, we're working with Tom and Dave many years now. Mm-hmm. They're, they're doing amazing, terrific things. They have a great team behind them, and team love. And my daughters are just amazing anyway. And I just hope that they, you know, they're all able to like work together and continue this amazing continuation of the Glastonbury Festival. You know, because um, one thing about Glastonbury Festival, if you if you look at um, look at all the areas, it's families. You know, Michael puts people in there who've been there for years. You know, and their children grow up there. Well, they play there. You know, they have fun there, and they and they volunteer, and then they become teenagers, and they. You know, they go and explore and then they suddenly, you know, end up working and running that area in some instances. Yeah? Yeah. So, yeah, there's no other festival like it in the world. And, yeah, I think, you know, without, you know, sounding too, yeah, it's down to Michael and and certainly Emily and Nick now and the the extended team up there. You know, it's a family at at the farm, you know, and uh, Glastonbury Festival reflects that in every aspect yeah you know when you've got 50 different areas mm. 50 different coordinators production yeah. it's like a massive you've got the site you've got the site manager you've got you know people don't see the background behind what happens to make that event happen mm. um, and that's just the practical things 
you know, help from the health and safety, making people safe, giving people an enjoyable time, giving them the services that they, that they want. But also there's an organic, creative, amazing team that make it happen. And I'm, and if any, I'm, yeah, I'm certainly blessed and proud to somehow got involved with this. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you don't, you don't go to college. I never, Matt, I never went to school, mm. for God's sake. I've got no exam in my name at all or qualification. It was just being in the right place at the right time. And to me, it feels natural, organic, and maybe my guardian angel, male or female, is there uh, looking after me. That's what I can say. Yeah. And, you know, your next project, um, or your new project, I should say, is the Star and Garter in Bristol. Um, from my understanding, it's, a, it's quite an iconic venue in the city, right? And you've taken that on. Um, can you tell us like that about some of the heritage of the place and your plans for it for the future and how has COVID disrupted that and what, you know, how are you going to come back from, from that and what kind of parties you're going to be putting on? Yeah, it's been quite challenging. Um, mm. So the Starling Garter has been a pub. As much of my knowledge, it's always been West Indian run. I remember Hector who took it over in the early 80s and then Dirty Ken, who got nicknamed Dirty Ducky Ken, um, took it over in the 90s. And then the pub closed because Ken died and I knew the family mm-hmm. and I'd been talking to them when he died and then nothing really materialised and then it, it came on the market and then, yeah. So, yeah, so I, yeah, I bought it and um, it took two years to buy and refurbished it, uh, made it bigger, opened up all the rooms, so took out Ken's coffin. Well, that was gone anyway, but Ken used to have a room with a coffin in it, you know, <laughs> at the table. And it was like, well, what's that all about? It's like, well, yeah, I need to get buried in that. And, and he was, you know. Wow. And um, his burial was, was, was very moving, actually. Yeah, just very moving. It's like it's the first time in my life I feel I'd gone to a proper West Indian burial. And, um, mm-hmm. yeah, it was it was very moving. But anyway, I knew, I knew the family. And they had lots of offers. Some were higher than what, what mine was. But I persuaded them that, it's going to stay a West Indian pub, mm-hmm. even though I'm only half West Indian. So they, they, yeah, they sold it to me, and yeah, so we refurbished it. I've got some of my local friends, um, Lou Howe, um, Bonnie Slide, Sylvia, another friend of mine, mm-hmm. to come and help me develop and build up a pictorial history inside the pub. Yeah, and just take it to the next generation. That's awesome. Um, what I want to do now is move on to the the five tracks on Spotify. We have something called the House Culture Perfect Playlist. Every single guest has submitted five of these tracks based on these themes to this playlist. You know, we've done like thirty over thirty episodes, and everyone's chosen five tracks. So it's you know it's a massive beast. You know, some real breadth of genres in there. So it's really interesting. Listen, and you know, you've your the solid choices from you as well that you've given us. Um, you know them. You know the track. Yeah, no. I tell you what. Um, I tell you which ones I knew as we moved through them. There was um, yeah. one in particular that I knew, but I didn't know the name. We'll come to it and um, we'll talk about it. But um, yeah, okay. yeah. Um, you're, I mean, we always start off with a catalyst, um, and you have chosen Eddie Grant, Time Warp. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I, I, I thought they were called something like the WLH band or something like that. It was on Cactus Records, I think. Yeah, so it's Eddie Grant, 
Ellie Grant tune, he went on to like do, yeah, Electric Avenue and I don't want to be there, you know, all that sort of stuff. Um, yeah. But it, it was a instrumental, absolutely just took me away. Yeah, it's just like, wow, what is this? Yeah, it's it's a mind blowing track, like completely different from that era as well. You know, nothing else really yeah. sounded like that. I'd imagine during no, that no, time. it was, it, it was, and uh, and for me, it was. Yeah, it's kind of going back to because at that time I was also DJing at a club where I wasn't allowed to play my own music only on the weekends, but only you know. So in the week, I'd have to play like chart stuff, you know, and I hated it because I was getting paid good money, but I hated it. Do you know what I mean? So. That was one of the tunes that came along. It's like, oh my god, fucking hell, thank god, you know what I mean? As well as the fat that band and all that sort yeah. of stuff, you know. You know, it was like, wow, yeah. That's my kind of first electronica, like, wow, this is great. Yeah. And a floor filler. I love this. I love this. Yeah. Um tell me what it is. I'm a disco, yeah. I love disco and I've always been a disco. Yeah, so Tavares, um, Heaven must have sent an angel. It is a floor filler, and you know what? You can just put that in wherever. If you want to change the genre, you want to change anything, it doesn't matter. You can play in the most banging tune, drumming bass. You put that in, and everyone will dance. They will. They will. The definition, yeah, of a floor filler, yeah. And it's. I'm thinking about the track now. I'm smiling. Matt and listeners, if you listen to the intro, that mm-hmm. instrumental intro, First of all, it, it starts off on one level and then it takes you to a, a higher chord. And then it's like the vocals just come in and it's like, I'm ready. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, well, I'm ready to dance. Cool. All right. A tearjerker. Um, this was one that I wasn't really familiar with, but I am familiar with the band, but not this particular track. Mate, that's all to do with my childhood, really. That's mm. all like, it's got to be 1972, 1973 tune. Yeah. Twilight, Amazing band Eugene Record I think was the lead singer at that time I didn't know anything about it I was still growing up um, mm-hmm. but it was a song that touched my heart because I felt like an outsider you know even though I didn't really understand the song uh, mm-hmm. about a man's love or a boy's love for another woman I think it was more about the lack of love that I had so yeah that I make no apologies that, that that's my tearjerker <laughs> yeah yeah homely girl isn't it anything from the shy lights and the stylistics and Teddy Pendergrass mm-hmm. and that kind of soul you know that comes from the soul yeah yeah proper soul music yeah and um a last tune this was the one that you missed that one the sunset oh sorry the sunset yeah no I have sorry you're you're right my God, thanks for picking up on that. Yeah, no, the Sunsetter. It's a no-brainer, isn't it? It's cool in the gang, summer madness. You know, whether yeah. it's the live version, the extended version, the single version, whatever version, that is the ultimate. It ends with a ring. It ends with a ring in your ear that's not too piercing, but even when the track is stopped, the ring just continues for a little while. It's just, it's just an amazing song. It's, a, it's an amazing song. Yeah, yeah. And then the last one. <laughs> yeah, last one. This was the one that I've heard a million times. Uh, I never really? knew. Yeah, uh, well, I've heard, I've heard it, you know, you hear it in the background of things, don't you, in adverts and stuff like that. Or, you never knew what it was. I never, I never knew, yeah, what it was, what it was. And then when I listened to it before this, it just brought this huge grin onto my face. Right, okay, I'll tell you a little story behind this tune and mm. why it's my favourite is that, is that, it's not just my end of tune, but it's also if I'm following a DJ at a club 
you know, and I would just put this tune on. Could I just take everybody away from whatever they were fucking listening to? It's like, wow, we're going to rewind, start again. Yeah. So this particular tune was in the chart in 1960. Okay. I was mm -hmm. born in 1960. So mm -hmm. in some way, in my subconsciousness, I was brought up with this tune because it was popular music. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And literally, when I was 40, I was at um, Electric Picnic. We were setting up the Pussy Parlor. Um, I had a whole team of uh, crew and friends with me and they brought me a card and they brought me this 1960 hits from the 1960s, number one hits from the 1960s. And I remember we like, it wasn't, the festival wasn't even open, but I remember like just whacking the CD on, you know, because we had the sound system on and everything. And like, it was like the third or fourth song on. I literally, I was walking across and I just stopped in my track. I was like, Oh my God, I've loved this all my life. And I don't know why. What the fuck is it? Do you know what I mean? And that's it ever since. For the last 20 years, I think. Yeah, 20 years. I have been playing that song as my last tune. If I'm doing a set or if I'm following on from somebody else to get everybody's attention. Mm -hmm. And normally what happens, Matt, at the end of the night, whatever happens, they all start waltzing or they all try to waltz. <laughs> it's fucking hilarious. It's absolutely hilarious. So that is the story behind my last tune. Yeah, what what tell us what it is, who did who it is and what this what it's called. Oh sorry, it's Percy Faith Orchestra and mm. it's called Theme from a Summer's Place. Yeah, I love Kit's music um yeah. as well. To have that like you say, it's like a palette cleanser if you're following someone and you put that on that's like, okay, I'm reset now. <laughs> yeah, that's my reset tune, last tune. And no one ever comes up and complains. You, know, you just see 15 or 200, 300, 400 people suddenly go from like banging that disco tune or that even that drum and bass and you just stick that on as the last one. And then it just, they all start waltzing. Fantastic. It's a lovely way to finish the night because it's a lovely yeah. tune. It's like, that's lovely, beautiful. Yeah. Everyone floats home. Yeah. Brilliant. We always finish with one final question um, to really wrap it up is that, you know, we are house culture and we're, you know, we're interested in all kind of club culture, music culture across the broad spectrum of everything. And we always ask our guests who exist within this culture and have made it their life, you know, when you look back on it and try and sum it up, what would you say that it's brought you overall the culture in terms of music that you've dedicated your life towards? Kept me young. It's kept me young. I, 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 yeah, I think so. There's a lot of people my age wouldn't be doing what I'm doing. But yeah, my love of music just keeps me young. Perfect. That's a brilliant place to, to end in a great final thought, I think. So let's stop there. All right, Matt. See you later. House culture. What a guy. What a life. There were some incredible stories in there, right? Everything from daft punk, diva-like demands and a dance tent full of dung. You can certainly experience all of the rich variety of life at Glastonbury. I want to say a massive thanks to Malcolm and his family for making that conversation happen. It was a joy to sit down with him and hear his story. I also hope that it satisfied some of your hunger for the festival experience that we're all missing out on at the moment. 
we shall be returning to live music in Muddyfield soon. Whilst we're waiting for that to happen, you can bring the party home with the House Culture Perfect playlist on Spotify. As you heard, Malcolm submitted some inspired choices to the Perfect playlist, some much needed kitsch in the form of Percy Faith's theme from A Summer's Place, all the way through to the beauty of Homely Girl by The Chilites. Unfortunately, Eddie Grant's 1970s proto-minimal track Time Warp is not on Spotify, so make sure you check that out elsewhere. Meanwhile, you can indulge in all of the other selections by opening up Spotify and searching for House Culture Perfect Playlist. Whilst listening to that, please help support this podcast by loving, liking, tweeting, sharing and rating or reviewing us on Apple. We love hearing from you. And if you say something nice, will not only help us to continue to create these podcast episodes, it could also get you a shout out on a future one as well. This time around, I'm shouting out to Adam Sandal, who got in touch on Facebook to say that he listened to our chat with lovely Laura and he really enjoyed it. Well, Adam, let's hope you also enjoy flicking through our back catalogue and getting amongst our previous podcast guests as well. And if you want to join us at House Culture from wherever you might be in the world right now, please hit up our Instagram feed at housecultureNet or follow the hashtag TrueHouseCulture. Not only will you be kept fully informed about the podcast, you'll also get connected with other beat lovers from across the globe. And finally, if you want to get in touch with me, Matt Rouse, you can do it directly on Instagram at DJ Matt Rouse. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and see you next time. House Culture. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.